Welcome to The Sword and the Trowel, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of churches. I'm Jared Longshore. And I'm Tom Askell. Thanks so much for listening to The Sword and the Trowel today. Very happy to have you with us. And a big thank you to our Founders Alliance members. We are grateful for your monthly support and encouragement. And we hope that you are greatly benefited by the partnership that we're engaged in and by the resources that come to many of you by being a part of the fam. If you're not, then you can go to founders.org and discover what it means to join the fam. Uh, We've got exciting things going on here at Founders Ministries. One is the Institute of Public Theology recently launched with applications opening in the month of April. And so if you keep your eye out on social media, if you keep your eye out at founders.org, you will see the application process opening up for the Institute of Public Theology. We're very excited about all that God's doing with that initiative. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our classes getting going in the fall. And uh, in fact, we have a guest today who's been really instrumental and helping me to frame thoughts and been a great encouragement uh, to us as we have conceived this idea and are trying to bring it to fruition. So today we have Dr. Everett Piper with us. He is the past president of the Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He served there for 17 years. And while serving there, he put that school on the map. Uh, he he took a, a really good stand about truth and righteousness, drew some lines in the sand, refused to cross over them and basically was willing to say to folks, look, if you don't care about truth, if you don't care about these issues that we are committed to, this isn't the school for you. And so, Dr. Piper, thank you so much for being with us today. We want to just talk with you about some of your own journey, some of your thoughts. Uh, You have written regularly uh, columns. I think it's the Washington Times. Is that right? You have a weekly column in the Washington Times? Yeah, and uh, you also have a podcast called The Rebellion. Love that name. And he's got a book that uh, many of you will already be aware of called Not a Daycare. And then he's got a new book called Growing Up, right? Yeah, so. Grow Up. Grow Up. Uh, grow Up. So, Everett, thanks for being here with us. It's a joy and an honor to have you on the Sword in the Trial. Tom, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm honored. Uh, very appreciative for your for your podcast and what you all do. And I, I am very humbled that you all have asked me to join you today. So thanks. Well, it's our privilege. Let's start off by just talking about what happened. I think it was 2015. Uh, you tell about it in your book, Not a Daycare, when one of your vice presidents uh, alerted you that a sermon that he preached on love, First uh, Corinthians 13 in chapel, had uh, kind of provoked a little pushback by at least one student in the student body. Can you tell us about what happened there? Yeah, I'd be honored to. I, and I should have, in the introduction, explained why I look the way I look right now. Your <laughs> listeners are probably wondering, who in the world is this guy? Um, as you know, in our pre-interview discussion, just before we, we went public with this, uh, I was out taking care of horses before we engaged in this. And you graciously gave me the latitude to come on looking like a redneck Okie rather than a college president. So thank you. <laughs> well, yeah, we feel right at home with that look. So glad that you're part okay. of it. All right, the story of not a daycare. Um, it's five years old now. It was 2015. It was Thanksgiving week. I had been writing an, a, an opinion piece, an op-ed for our local small town newspaper in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. I had been doing so for about a decade. I would write about anything that I wanted to. They gave me latitude to cover any of the news or any of the social issues of the day. And I always interwove my op-ed with a biblical worldview as the local Christian college president. It was that week during chapel at Oklahoma Wesleyan University 
um, that one of our students approached the speaker, not me, it was one of our vice presidents. He approached the speaker after the chapel homily, the, sh the short sermon, and confronted the speaker and said, you offended me. You singled me out and you singled my peers out. You made me feel uncomfortable. And as the chapel speaker was describing this situation to me, because I didn't happen to be there that day, he was giving me a heads up. And I responded to the speaker, my vice president. I said, well, what was your topic? Why was the kid so offended? And he said, you won't believe this one. It was 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> I said, you have to be kidding me. And I said, I know you speak from a script all the time. He very rarely ad-libs. He's verbatim from his notes. I said, send me a copy of your notes. I want to read your sermon, your speech. I wondered, is there some political humor? Was there something that he inserted in the, the sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 that caught the kid off guard? What in the world is going on? I read the thing from cover to cover, and there was nothing in it that was offensive. No political humor, no sarcasm, nothing. It was 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. I was beside myself. I couldn't believe that the Snowflake Rebellion had come to my campus, a campus that stood boldly for the primacy of Jesus. Jesus Christ, the priority of scripture, the pursuit of truth as an objective reality, not a postmodern construct, mm -hmm. and the practice of godly wisdom, of sanctification, of holiness, of obedience unto the Lord. Those were the four pillars of the mission of Oklahoma Wesleyan University while I was there. Christ, scripture, truth, wisdom. I couldn't believe that we had a kid complaining about a homily on 1 Corinthians 13. So my op-ed in the paper that week was on this issue. And I basically said in 800 words or so, if you expect to be coddled rather than confronted, go someplace else. This is not a place where we're going to make you feel comfortable. We're going to challenge your character. That's what the university is supposed to do. And then I concluded after my bit of a rant by saying, this is a university. It is not a daycare. And that was the end of my commentary. Well, generally, when I wrote for the local small town newspaper back then, oh, five people would read it and three people would care. But something happened that week. Somebody got a hold of that op-ed and sent it to Glenn Beck. I still don't know who or how. But on Thanksgiving morning, while I'm going about our Thanksgiving routine, I noticed that my social media is going crazy and that 35,000 people had clicked on that story. And then I found out that Glenn Beck had posted it, mm. and that was why. By 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Thanksgiving Day, it was up to 75 and 80,000 people had clicked on that story. At the end of two weeks, 3.5 million people. Mm. And Fox and & Friends and Drudge and & Dreher and NBC Today and ABC News and uh, Bill O'Reilly and Tucker Carlson, and it sounds like I'm name-dropping, but the list <laughs> went on and on and on of people that were saying, finally, a college president called this what it is. It's nonsense. This is the antithesis of academic freedom. This is ideological fascism where the students are saying, don't challenge us with anything that makes us feel uncomfortable. So I had my 15 minutes of fame because I said, a university is not supposed to be a safe place. It's supposed to be a place where you learn. Mm. It's surprising that it would happen with First Corinthians, First Corinthians thirteen. It's not like you were doing Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I wonder how that would have been received. The least offensive passage of all of the Bible, you could argue, is what this kid chose to be offended over, and that is the poster child of this problem. Mm. 
You know, it's fascinating. I, I've uh, reread that op-ed that you uh, wrote. It's, it's in your book. And in there you say, our culture has, culture has actually taught students to be this self-absorbed and narcissistic. Anytime their feelings are hurt, they are the victims. And anyone who dares to challenge them and thus makes them feel bad about themselves is a hater, a bigot, an oppressor, and a victimizer. You know, I'm, I'm just stunned with the contrast between that type of honest speech, which is really loving because if a person is wrapped up in this way of thinking about the world, he is, he is headed for a very sad life and in love to speak the truth about that. The, the contrast with how you responded to this versus the way we see administrators and colleges and universities and seminaries responding today. And I, I and praise God for your willingness to speak simply, boldly, clearly, according to scripture. What do you attribute uh, so much of the environment on our college and university campuses too? What's, what's happened? Why, why are administrators afraid to do and say what you've said and done? Um, there's so many different paths we could go down in answering that question. So let me just try to stick on one or two of those mm-hmm. trails. Number one, post-modernity. Mm. The postmodern mind is a mind that fixates on opinions rather than facts. I've said many times that while I was a university president, I never gave anyone a diploma in opinions. I didn't celebrate their opinion on graduation day. I didn't say, congratulations, you've got a degree in opinions. Mm -hmm. That would have been absurd. I expected them to have learned something, to attain some measure of understanding of the truths of their relative disciplines, biology, physiology, marketing, accounting. I mean, these are... These are majors in the university level because they allow you to major, to focus on the pursuit of truth within that given discipline. And if I would have patted the student on the back when he marched across the stage to get his diploma and said, hey, good for you, you've got a degree in opinions, he rightfully would have thought I've lost my mind and that he wasted his money. That is a summary of what the postmodern mindset is. We celebrate opinions and feelings while we diminish the objective reality of the world, the self-evident truths that are endowed to us by our creator, and we elevate feelings over facts, to paraphrase Ben Shapiro. So the first path I would go down in answering your question is, this is post-modernity. And the Christian Academy has even bought the lie. We've bought the lie. Intersectionality, critical race theory, uh, the the Snowflake Rebellion, elevating feelings and opinions over facts, this is all part and parcel of the same broken worldview. And it's also the confusion, to play off of your question, it's the confusion of love and tolerance. Mm-hmm. I was on the O'Reilly Factor once, and we got onto this issue of tolerance. And I responded to Bill O'Reilly by asking this question. Mr. O'Reilly, on your anniversary, did you send your wife an I tolerate you card? And he looked at me blankly, like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I interrupted the silence and I said, you probably didn't, because had you done so, it wouldn't have ended well. And the reason, Mr. O'Reilly, is this. Tolerance is an inferior virtue. Tolerance says, I don't love you. I don't even necessarily like you, but I'll tolerate you. Whereas Christian charity, love says, I like you enough, I love you enough to stand in your way and say, stop. Mm. 
tolerance is an inferior virtue. Love is a superior virtue. That's why we don't celebrate tolerance on our anniversary or on Valentine's Day. And it's the reclaiming of the high ground of love versus tolerance, which is really nothing more than enablement that we should be doing as educators and as the body of Christ. Yeah, Dr. Piper, my sense is, as I think about it, especially the opinion fact, that really is what we're facing. That You've got this um, inability to deal with reality as it is, as God the Creator has established it. Uh, one of the things Tom and I have talked about a lot is how it seems we're almost moving past this this post-modernity where um, we were kind of saying, the postmoderns were saying, you can all kind of have your own opinion. But it's been increasingly evident that, you know, someone like Nancy Pelosi no longer seems to operate that way. She seems to care quite a bit about uh, solid things. Now, she doesn't care about the actual truth, but why is she forcing you to use the pronouns? Why is she ripping up the president's speech? If it's just it's his opinion, you have your, your opinion, but it's almost like it's hardening and it's turning into this um, this tyranny that we're seeing in in the civil magistrate and in other areas. And I'm suspicious that one of the reasons um, college administrators, even Christian leaders, do not stand up and speak the truth as you have done is they don't have the steel spine that is necessary to face the tyranny and the accusations and the charges that are now going to come from the left that is actually kind of hardening and leaving off that idea of opinions. Do you sense that? What kind of um, blows have you taken? And do you see this strictness happening? How would you encourage uh, Christian leaders in the institutional world to stand up and speak the truth no matter the cost? I do think it's a lack of courage. And I want to be careful how I answer this. I don't want to be saying, hey, I'm the courageous one. That's not the point. Uh, maybe I'm the stupid one. Maybe I'm the one with the big mouth. Maybe I was the one who was foolish enough to actually jump into the middle of this mess and stand in the way of the train. Um, but the point is, let's, let's look to Winston Churchill. Churchill, you could accuse him of being a bore, of being a misogynist. You could accuse Churchill of having an ill temperament. Um, he wasn't the ideal Christian, per mm. se. But it's because of Winston Churchill's tenacity and courage and his refusal to give in, to never give up, never, ever, ever give up, that we speak English today rather than German, you could argue. Mm -hmm. um, courage. You, you have to have the confidence and the conviction that here I stand, I can do no other. I'm right on this. Not everybody can be right. The law of non-contradiction says that Nancy Pelosi disagrees with me 180 degrees, and therefore we both can't be right. And as you pointed out, even she tacitly is admitting this because, because of her disdain for Donald Trump. So the postmodern, postmodernity always saws off the branch upon which it sits. Mm -hmm. It saws frantically away on the branch of tolerance, and it comes tumbling down, and then they have to make sense of it. Um, and I think in a sense, they know that it's kind of a Saul Alinsky type tactic mm -hmm. where you use your enemies principles against them until you've got power. And then you discard those principles because you never believed them in the first place. Frankly, it's Islam. I mean, mm -hmm. we know that Muhammad was tolerant at the front end of, of Islam until he gained power. And then he wasn't so tolerant in the later surahs, was he? Um, the law of abrogation abrogated the peaceful passages in favor of the violent passages. So this all lumps together into a broken world view. And really the only solution is what Jesus told us, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. 
when you abandoned the concept of objectivity, of truth, of self-evident truths, of natural law, of common sense, of biblical revelation, when we abandon all of those rock-solid foundations for a free society and for the dignity of the human being, we don't have much left but power mm. because the principles have been, have been discarded on this altar of post-modernity. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's fascinating. The battle always is for the dictionary. And so this student coming to your vice president, I'm sure felt like he was not being loved. And uh, that had to factor into the way he made his complaint. And yet God's the one who defines love. Um, Their love rejoices in truth, 1 Corinthians 13 says. And so you can't really love someone if you are not rejoicing in truth, if you're holding the truth back from them. I love this line in your book, Not a Daycare, on your chapter about uh, leadership in our universities. You say, our university leaders and faculty need to grow a spine. Our times demand it. We have too many learned cowards lining once hallowed halls of learning. Fewer and fewer voices have the courage to stand and speak the truth and simply say, I disagree. And what I've seen happen, I think I saw it with Trump. You know, everybody hated Trump because he wasn't nice. He wasn't, uh, he didn't speak well, or he, he, he was vulgar in ways. And all those things are condemnable, and we can certainly uh, have conversations about him. But the things he stood for, the things he did, the things he stood against were in many respects, even surprisingly so to some of us, right and good and true. And listening, listening to what you just said, I'm reminded of that old Billy Joel song. You know, you may be right. I may be crazy, but I just might be the lunatic you're looking for. And I think sometimes we find ourselves in that situation today. And yet again, it seems like we have so many in leadership that are just kowtowing to the spirit of the age and unwilling to stand up and say, no, this is what is true and this is what is false. And to see that happening in the Christian world and especially in our Christian academies, Christian churches, it is disheartening. What counsel would you have for, I mean, we're, we're hoping to start, or we are starting this Institute on Public Theology and we want to avoid all of these pitfalls that we've seen that you've pointed out. What counsel would you have? for uh, administrators and for professors that are seeking to chart a course contrary to the spirit of the age? Well, you you quoted the great theologian, um, uh, Billy Joel. (laughs) May I presume to quote uh, the great theologian that was a generation before him, Billy Preston. And that is nothing from nothing breeds nothing. You got to have something if you want to be with me. Um, all, all joking aside, uh, that old song of the 60s from Billy Preston is actually very insightful. Nothing from nothing leads to nothing. Mm. You have to have something. You have to have something if you want to do anything. And again, the collapse of the academy, the ivory tower, that supposedly stands for the pursuit of truth because it has elevated feelings over facts has led to institutions even like Berkeley. Okay, Berkeley fancies itself as the what? The birthplace of the free speech Mm -hmm. movement. But Berkeley, ironically, was canceling Ben Shapiro and Dennis Prager from speeches that were scheduled on their campus during 2015, 16, 17. Berkeley wouldn't allow me to speak there, most likely, because I would be too offensive, because I'm challenging some of the postmodern assumptions of that campus, of those faculty and of those students. Therefore, I'm making them feel uncomfortable. What's happened is 
they've proven that Berkeley isn't the birthplace of free speech. Bethlehem is because it was in a stable under the stars in Israel that the word made flesh and dwelling among us was born and came to give us the objective reality of not only who God is, but who the Imago Dei, the image of God is before him. It's the biblical worldview that allows us to have the freedom that Berkeley wants to have in the first place. That's the magic of our answer. Mm. G.K. Chesterton says that when you get rid of the big laws of God, you do not get liberty. You get thousands of little laws that rush in to fill the vacuum. That's exactly what we see in our culture. We refuse to live by the 10 simple laws. That was it, just 10 (laughs) that we were given by God in the Old Testament. And frankly, Jesus summarizes those 10 by saying two. So we can't live by 10 or two simple laws. So what do we get as a result? We don't get more freedom. We get reams of little laws from Washington, D.C. and elsewhere telling us how to live our lives down to the point where they're now telling us what pronouns to use Mm. and not use and how to use the bathroom. That is not liberty. That is ideological fascism. And I'll I'll, I'll shut up after this. I remind everybody that the word fascism comes from the word fascist. What is a fascist? It's a Roman bundle of sticks bound together so tightly that it cannot be broken, the bond of commonality. And if you're not part of the common bond, if you don't walk like us, talk like us, think like us, if you don't use the pronouns like us, if you don't embrace all of the LGBTQ rainbow cabal lies like us, then you're verboten. We will expel you. We will crush you with the fascists. That is not academic freedom. That is not the ideal of the ivory tower. It's not the ideal of the church. That is ideological fascism at its worst. Dr. Piper, one of the things that's been concerning to me is... Um as you mentioned, Berkeley the, is not the birthplace of freedom of speech, but Bethlehem is. And yet in evangelical America today, we see many that don't even have to be commanded by the civil authority to use the pronouns, but they're uh, willing to use them, them themselves. They're willing to police their own speech. They actually don't need a civil authority to do it. And the church in America really does need to grow up. And so I'm excited about your book here. And I know that you'll be uh, speaking about this book on a variety of platforms in the future, but we want to let our listeners know that you heard it here first. <laughs> you heard about Dr. Everett Piper's book, Grow Up Here at the Sword and the Trowel first. I would love to hear more about this, how um, we all need to grow up. The subtitle, Life Isn't Safe, But It's Good. And then with particular applications to the evangelical church and its leaders in America, in what ways do they need this book that you have written? Well, again, I'm going to hold up the cover here real quick. Um, it's it's uh, It will be released on April 13th, and the subtitle is probably the point to, in answering your question. Where does that come from? Life isn't safe, but it's good. Well, for those that know the Chronicles of Narnia and C.S. Lewis, I'm taking this from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The first time the children enter the magic of Narnia, they're confused, they don't know who they are, and they're down by the river in the beaver den talking to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they hear from the beavers that Aslan is on the loose, the son of the emperor beyond the sea is on the loose, and that mentor, excuse me, winter is starting to melt and spring is a bloom because of Aslan. The children turn to Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and they ask, well, who is Aslan? 
the beavers ex ex explain to them who he is and they say, the children say, well, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, well, of course not. Of course not. Aslan is not safe, but he's good. Now let's paraphrase that. Let's use the Piper paraphrase here. The great lion of Jesus Christ is not safe. Wasn't supposed to be, is not safe, but he's good. There's a difference between safety and goodness. Mm. The great lion of the ivory tower is not safe, but it's good. The great lion of the church is not supposed to be safe, but it's good. There's a huge difference in life between safety and goodness. And I'd much rather have the second than the first. C.S. Lewis told us that when you put first things first, you get the first and the second thrown in for good measure. But when you put second things first, rather than those that should be first, you'll likely get neither. And I would argue what we've done in our culture right now, and COVID has exposed this great uh, lack of character and confidence and courage in our culture, in mm. my view. Mm. We have bowed at the altar of safety and we've given up the goodness of freedom. We've reversed the first and second things. And what we're finding right now is we're not gonna get either at the end of the day. This book, Grow Up, is a call to act like an adult in a world that's increasingly proving itself to be a uh, daycare on a daily basis. And it's 20 lessons, 20 chapters on how to do that, how to grow up and be mature and how to act like an adult with confidence and courage, how to be a Churchill in the face of a world that's desperately begging for leadership that's courageous and confident and has conviction rather than this, this uh, capitulation to safety rather than those things that are good. Mm. That sounds wonderful. Look forward to seeing that book and uh, distributing it as well, recommending it. We, we again, has just learned so much from you and are so grateful for your friendship and your stand and your um, experience that you have in the academic world, as well as just trying to help Christians think rightly about what's going on in the culture around us today. Uh, as you said a while ago, COVID and 2020 has exposed a great deal of the weaknesses that we face in the evangelical world here in the United States and, and even beyond into other countries. And we need voices like yours and we need the principles that undergird the things that you're standing on to be highlighted once again. We want to be a part of that. We want to help with that. And we want to commend our listeners to you, to your website, to your books. Your website is, is DrEverettPiper.com. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. D-R-E-V-E-R-E-T-T-D-I-D-E-R.com. Yeah, there's a world of information there, and you can get your book, uh, pre-order it off of Amazon. Is, and I'm sure if they find your website, they can find all the links that they need to your podcast and to your articles that you're writing. And we would just want to commend you. Uh, thank you so much for your willingness to come on board today and help us to think about these matters. Oh, thank you so much. Again, very honored and humbled to join you. Yeah, as we close up here, Dr. Piper, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about uh, 2020 and how our lack of courage has been exposed. And so if you wouldn't mind, would you stay around for just a few minutes? We have our armory and we would love to uh, talk to you for about 10 minutes there. And if you're part of the fam, you can get access to that armory. And if you're not, uh, go to founders.org again. You can find out more information, but we'll have Dr. Piper stick around and hear about really what went on. I want to hear your analysis of 2020, the lack of courage and what might be done about it. So thank you so much for listening to The Sword and the Trial today. We hope that you've been greatly blessed by this podcast.